B team, perhaps if I could have my first slide, that would be a kind help to me. Thank you. Well, it's good to see all the survivors of retreat. Um, we had our annual immunization, did we not? And uh, I think the silver lining is hopefully we'll be healthy for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas holidays. Well, our uh, theme, we're getting back to the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we just had that joy and privilege of celebrating the Lord's table and uh, baptism together. And also, we had a parent dedication as well. And uh, this Sunday, we're coming back to Matthew chapter 6 and to Jesus' sermon about his kingdom and kingdom righteousness. And very specifically, we're going to be focusing on the prayer of Christ's kingdom, the righteous prayer of Christ's kingdom. But I want to take you back, if I might, to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, if you'd look there with your Bibles. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Psalm 116, it is an awesome psalm. And I just encourage you, if you have a chance later today in this week, just to read through it and meditate on it. And it is such a grace as we consider that the children of God are not immune from suffering, distress, and anguish. It is a reality of our lives. The distinction for a child of God is that we have a God who is our Father, who we can go to during those times of distress and anguish. And he is a God who hears our cry and he hears our prayer. And our focus this morning is very much on what prayer is and very specifically what prayer in Christ's kingdom, what righteous prayer is. Now, what is prayer? At its simplest, we tend to think of prayer as communication with God. But at its purest, in Christ's kingdom, Prayer is to be a child of God's holy communion with the Lord. It's something much more than just communication and sharing information with someone. It's about the sharing of a life and a love together with someone. We think of marriage, do we not? And we think of if all we did was get up in the morning and tell our spouse what we needed for the day and just give them updates of where we're going to be, they could get that from right our, our phone find my friend, right? They don't need a spouse and you don't need to get married Nathaniel and Aaron for that experience, right? The idea of communion is a life that is shared together and a life that is one. And our communication, our words are part of that. And because we were created by a God who speaks and his word has power and he loves us through his word and he corrects us with his word and he makes things straight with his word. This is the God of the Bible all right, our words and what we say are very much a part of our communion. And prayer is very much meant to be an expression of God's love for us and our love for him. 
And J.C. Ryle makes this statement. He says, no man or woman can expect to be saved. No man or woman can expect to be saved who does not pray. And that idea of being saved is having a relationship, a right relationship with God. All the children of God are alike in this responsibility. They pray. Just as the first sign of a newborn's life is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. And then J.C. Ryle asks this question, do you pray? And the implication here is the absence of praying is a sign of sickness or the lack of a relationship or not being a child of God. And this morning, we're returning to Matthew chapter 6, to the middle portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he devotes a significant amount of time to this issue, this concern of prayer. And it's where our Lord and Savior is speaking to his disciples very specifically about their worship and their prayer, prayer within the context of worship. And as I've said before, everyone worships and everyone prays. The question is, what And who do you worship? And what and who do you pray for? Is it science? Is it Allah? Is it your career? Is it your friends? Is it your spouse? We all pray for something. We all pray to someone. The question is, who and what are we praying for? And the reason this happens, even if you're an atheist, there's something that you're worshiping or something that you're praying for, is that according to God's word, we were created for worship. We were created for fellowship. We were created for prayer. And where worship and prayer are part of a right relationship with God, it's about God's gift of communion and fellowship with his children. It's about communion and fellowship with the God who created us for himself. And therefore, one of our primary, if you will, purposes in life is is worship. And part of worship is prayer. It's what we were created for. Dr. Mayhew and Dr. MacArthur make this point about prayer. If I could have my next slide, please. Prayer is the occasion for personal communion with God in which the worshiper seeks God's face in order that he or she might behold his transforming beauty. It's a much greater vision of prayer than what most religions or most people think about prayer, communicating with a God or petitioning a God. As J.C. Ryle points out, Worship and prayer are both like breathing. And in the absence of clean air, brothers and sisters, we will still breathe. The question is, what are we inhaling? And what are we taking in and what are we putting out? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus points out to his disciple that what sets apart the worship and prayer of his kingdom is a unique privilege and gift. And it's the unique privilege and gift of worship and praying to the one true living God as our Heavenly Father. And this is our big truth for this morning. And I know it sounds simple and obvious, 
But as Jesus walks the disciples through, there are many things that we need to consider that might not be present in what we think traditionally of as worship and prayer. And that big truth is God's children pray to God as their heavenly father. This is the righteous prayer of Christ's kingdom. And the implication and what it's built on is that there is a right relationship with God. And a right relationship with God is a relationship with him as our heavenly father. Because this is the relationship that Adam and Eve first had in the garden. This is the relationship that sin destroyed. And this is the primary relationship which Christ came into this world and he died for and he gave his life on the cross for what? Not a ticket to heaven, brothers and sisters. He died so that we might be restored and set free from the bondage and power of sin in order to have a right relationship, a right fellowship, a communion and union with the God who created us for himself. And when we consider the truth of what worship is and what God gave us worship for and prayer for, I think we begin to see that much of what we call worship and what we call prayer is something very, very different. This morning as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to consider what does it mean to pray to God as our Heavenly Father? And do we indeed pray as children of God? If you have your Bibles, have a look with me at Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to go to the very end, verse 48. And verse 48 is like a hinge verse. It summarizes everything in chapter 5, and it lays the foundation for everything that's going to come in chapter 6. Matthew 5, 48, this is our Lord and Savior speaking. You, therefore, and he's speaking to the disciples, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about what we just heard by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ standard, most of what is called worship and prayer, and that includes within the evangelical church, is neither righteous nor is it part of his kingdom. 
from the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, speaking as the Messiah and King of Heaven, has made it clear that every aspect of his kingdom, without exception, every aspect of his kingdom requires a heavenly righteousness that only God can give. Our righteousness does not cut it. The righteousness of man will never get you through the door and through the gate into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness we need is a righteousness from above. It is Christ's own righteousness. It is a righteousness of a perfect life with a perfect relationship with a perfect Father in heaven. And this righteousness is indeed, however, a perfect gift. And it's a gift that comes through repentance and faith in Christ when Christ is our King, and He is our Master, and He is our Lord. And Jesus walks through this at the very beginning, through the Beatitudes, and He shows this heavenly righteousness that only he can give, but that he does give, is a righteousness that every true child of God hungers and thirsts for. They crave for it. But it's also a righteousness that only God can satisfy. We will not find it in the world. We will not find it in the world's entertainment. We will not find it in our careers. We will not find it in politics. This is the righteousness our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gives to all who repent and follow him by faith as Savior and Lord. But it is also the righteousness that he requires of all his disciples in every aspect of our lives, without exception. And in the beginning of Matthew 5, he shows this is what he requires of our hearts. And at the end of Matthew 5, he shows this is what he requires of our relationships. And as we come to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is showing the disciples this is what he requires in their worship. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Jesus is the king of heavenly hearts and worship. Jesus is the king of heavenly hearts and worship. Jesus rules, he commands, he reigns, and he states what our hearts are to be and what our worship is to be. And of course, this raises the question, who is the king of your heart? And who is ruling your worship? Is it our desires, our preferences, our experiences, what we've experienced at different places? Or is Jesus setting the pace and setting the direction of what we're to be and what we're to do? And when we think about worship, that can be a vague term. We think about what we do on Sundays or in a place of worship, in a temple, or a mosque, and that is qualified. What we do in religious places is considered to be worship. But worship is about how we interact and engage with our gods, who and what we honor, who and what we serve, and who and what we praise. As you walk through the Old Testament, very much the words associated with worship are honor, serving, and praising. Now, that's not all of worship, but they show some of the steps of worship. And if you want to know what you worship, you just consider, what do you honor? What do you serve? What do you praise? Is it our career? Is it our family? Is it our entertainment? You've been together with those people who all they can talk about is their job, right? It's the only way that they can relate. 
and you realize this is what they honor, this is what they serve, this is what they praise, this is what fills their mind 24-7. It's why our wives, right? When we're out in the anniversary dinner and we begin to talk about work and ministry, we get that look, right? We ain't thinking about them. When Matthew 6, Jesus addresses three private practices of righteousness that are common to all worship. Giving, verse 2 through 4, or in particular, specifically, caring for the needy. Praise, verse 4 through 14. And fasting, verse 16 through 18. Now, Jesus is not here trying to give us an exhaustive list of here's your checklist of what you need to do to be a good worshiper. You need to give, you need to pray, and you need to fast. He's actually addressing our hearts. He's not addressing sinning, excuse me, singing, preaching, okay? Where he's going with this is he's going to the private personal practices of worship that no one sees but are common to everybody's worship whatever it is you worship. Now think about this. Have you ever missed a meal for work? I have. Okay. Have you ever given something for your job? Have you ever had a thought or a hope or a quest for a petition of what you would like to happen in your home? All right, so as you think about those things, fasting, praying, and giving, are three things that really direct and show what we honor, what we serve, and what we praise. And it's with these three private practices of worship that Jesus is showing his disciples and us that really all worship involves intentional disciplines and practices. There are patterns of worship. And these patterns of worship as he addresses private worship and personal worship, which typically are meant where people don't see, he's showing them that these practices of worship and these disciplines of worship flow from our heart. This is where our worship begins, and this is where the battlefield for what rules our lives. This is where it takes place. And in Matthew 5:48, Jesus, speaking as Messiah and King, he sets the cornerstone and standard for the worship of our hearts and for the worship of his kingdom. The foundation, the, sta the standard, what sets the direction. And very specifically, what is to set the standard in the kingdom of heaven and in Christ's kingdom is a right relationship with Christ as King and a right relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. Our worship is meant to flow from a relationship, and this is what sets Christ's kingdom apart from all other worship. All other worship, we are giving and fasting, and we are serving to try and get something for ourselves. We go to the temple, and we burn incense. We chant sutras. We go to the mosque and we bow five times a day. All of these different things that we do, we're doing something to find favor with the God. We're doing something to feel better about ourselves. We're doing something to move ourselves forward, just like our academic careers. Jesus is coming as he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First of all, he's giving a command about what we're to be. 
Secondly, he's giving a command to his disciples of who their father is. Your father isn't the world. You belong to the God who is holy. This is your father. Let's make it clear. Let's make it straight. You're not here running the streets. And as he sets this standard, he shows that their worship, contrary to the world, is to flow out of this relationship which he has saved them into, that he has brought them into. It's the opposite of the world. It's a relationship of grace. And the worship of his kingdom is a worship of grace, unmerited favor that flows from the steadfast love and mercy of God that we sang about this morning. But it is also tied to his righteousness and his holiness because this is who your father is. Hence Christ's command, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We talked about this previously. We are not perfect. We are not sinless unless we're in Christ. And then because of his righteousness and his perfection and because we are covered and united with him, we've been given a righteousness and perfection that is not our own. And this command that Jesus gives is followed in 6.1, by a second command, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for advantage, that you are worshiping for personal advantage. You're trying to get a leg up. That's the way of the world. And very clearly, Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, not as a life coach or a friend or a discipleship group leader. He's speaking to them as the Messiah as the king of his disciples' hearts and worship, the one who decides what his disciples are to be and what they're to do. He owns them. Who owns you? And who owns your worship? So with these two commands, Jesus is addressing not what his disciples are after or pursuing, he's addressing what they already have. The priceless gift of his righteousness and a right relationship with God as Heavenly Father. This, brothers and sisters, is what sin destroys. This is what Christ has come to give his life for. This is what worship in Christ's kingdom is all about. His righteousness and a right relationship with God as Heavenly Father. It's not about me, per se. And it's also not about how I get a leg up. Christ's commands are not about how to earn God's favor. They're about how to care for what God has already given us in Christ. These two commands are about protecting what God has already given the disciples because of Christ's presence in their life as their king. As we think about these two commands, there are three really important truths that they stand upon. First, these are three truths about kingdom worship. Kingdom worship is holy. And by holy, we mean it is set apart for the Lord. Kingdom worship is from God 
and it is for God. It is not from me, what I do on a Sunday. It is not for me, and it is not about what works for me. It's a huge distinction. Think about how often we get discouraged in our relationships, in our work, and in our church. And how often does our discouragement come because things have not met our expectations, our preferences, or what works for me? How many of the decisions do we make as families based on what I think is best, what I believe is best for my family, what works for me? And if it's not working for me, then I'm going to go elsewhere. That's the way of the world. And as we come to the worship of Christ's kingdom, as Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And beware of practicing your righteousness for personal advantage. He's making the point that you're seen by other men. He's making the point, look, your worship is a gift from God. Your relationship is a gift from God. And because of that, everything in it is for God. He sets the standard. It's for God. Him. And brothers and sisters, that means sometimes worship is hard. I've heard that from folks. We've heard that in ministry. We've all shared it too, where people have said, well, it's not, it's like it's work. It's not fun anymore. When I used to be in this ministry or when I used to be at this place, it used to be sweet and we had all this experience and it was fantastic. And now it's just, it's just a grind. And we think, who is this worship for? And we think of our Lord and Savior going to the cross. And we think, ah, how much fun was it to go to the cross? How much fun was it to love and shepherd the disciples when they really didn't get it? And yet he persisted and he stayed with them and he loved them and he loved them and he loved them and he loved them. Why? Because his worship and his service and his giving and his prayer was not for him, it was for his Father in heaven, and it was for them. Brothers and sisters, holiness is directly connected with the love that brings us into salvation and fellowship with the Lord and that we are to give others. Second, without Christ and his gospel, there is no right relationship with God and there is no right worship. I can preach till my face is blue. If I'm sinning against my wife or my children and I'm not right with the Lord, it is an abomination to God. And you might not see it in the beginning, but the Lord will expose it eventually. Right? Without Christ and without the gospel, there is no right relationship with God and there is no Righteous worship. And what does that mean? It means everyone is welcome to repent and place their faith in Christ. But brothers and sisters, not everybody is welcome to participate in worship. We're shocked by that, right? But worship is how many people can we get in the building and sing praises to the Lord? Well, as you walk through Scripture, he doesn't work that way. The whole Old Testament system of sacrifice and law was to set very clearly to protect people from coming into the presence of a holy God to say, you can come in or you can't come in, 
and you need a sacrifice to cover your sins because as a sinful person, you can't come close to a holy God. And for Gentiles, they had a special court in the temple for the Gentiles. You wanted to invite your friends. They were welcome to come and observe, but they could not come close. And so they had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And that's why at church, the Lord's Supper and baptism, that's the point. Church worship is a participation in a family event for God's children who have been saved, who are right with the Lord. The world is welcome to come to observe. But let's not blur the lines. Participation in worship, participation in the family meal is for the family. It's a gift from God, and that makes it sacred. And I think we would think differently about how we go about our business if we thought, this is special because it's a gift from the Lord. Third, Christ's gospel work is still in process in our lives. We're not there yet. We are not perfect. One day when we see him face to face, his work will be done. Our perfection and righteousness comes from his covering and his blood. But until he comes again, he is still at work in our hearts and he's still at work in our church. And the result of that means his worship in our hearts and our lives is still under attack. And this is why Jesus says in the second command, he says, beware, beware, be on guard. There's a danger here. And the danger, as he goes on to show, comes from your very own heart. Sinclair Ferguson writes, conversion does not remove the presence of sin from our hearts, even though it is dethroned in our lives. When we are saved, Christ becomes our king. Sin is no longer our master and no longer rules us. We no longer belong to the world. But it is still present in our sinful flesh and it is still waging war trying to take control. And he goes on to say, sin still works deceitfully in our minds. And this remaining desire of our sinful flesh, of the world, and Satan is to worship what? Not the Lord. That desires to worship ourselves, right? That not the original fall in the garden, the appeal to worship ourselves, what I enjoy, what I prefer, what I think is right. What's the remedy, brothers and sisters? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life, he goes on to explain in John 17, is a life that is about knowing who? Knowing God as our Heavenly Father. And so we see the remedy, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is the remedy for worship. This is the remedy for our hearts. This is the remedy for our marriages and our church. It's a right relationship with God. And the remedy is Christ's presence and rule in our lives as Lord and King, over our hearts and worship. It's Christ's presence in our life. And it's Christ's presence in our life taking charge of our hearts and our worship, what we say and what we do. The remedy, brothers and sisters, is the obedience of faith with his commands. That's why as we get together and we shepherd one another, really we can spend hours trying to figure out how we got so messed up. 
But there is a sense in which God only knows. But the remedy is very simple and clear. We need to bow at the feet of Christ and we need to simply obey what he commands. And whatever it is and whatever aspect of our life that the Lord has exposed, that we're not being obedient and we need to simply look to him in faith and follow him and say, okay, I'm going to follow your lead and your health and your strength to obey you. Not my sinful fleshly desires and not what I think is right. This brings us to our Second point for this morning. God's church must guard their hearts in giving, in prayer, and in worship. God's children must guard their hearts in giving, in prayer, and in worship. And this is Christ's repeated command as we go through chapter 6. He's continually telling the disciples, be on alert, be careful, guard against, watch, beware about every aspect of your heart and your worship. Every aspect of your heart and worship is to be holy. It's to be set apart unto the Lord. And if we disregard Christ's commands about his worship, we are being fools. Why? What's at stake? Jesus is pointing out what's at stake is something far more important than the songs we sing or the sermons we listen to. What's at stake is my relationship with God as Heavenly Father. And Jesus, in verses 2 through 18, he shows us how we must guard our hearts and our worship and our relationship with God. And he begins with our giving, very specifically giving to the needy, our mercy ministry. And he goes on with prayer. And his command about our giving and our prayer begin not with if you give and if you pray, but when, whenever you give and whenever you pray. Now, as we mentioned before, everyone naturally gives and prays. It's usually we're giving and praying for ourselves. What benefits me? But what's setting apart children of God is that our giving is purely and ultimately for the Lord. And our prayer is purely and ultimately for the Lord. And when a child of God gives to the deity, they do not do so for the applause of men or out of a heart that desires or craves validation. They are doing so out of a heart of love for their Heavenly Father, and because this is the heart of their Heavenly Father, because our Heavenly Father is always taking care of those in need. And the same is true of a child of God's prayer. And the first step in guarding our hearts and our worship and our prayer and our relationship with God is giving and submitting our hearts to Christ. Always. This is faith and this is holiness. And the second step that comes is learning and repeatedly and intentionally practicing what Christ commands. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we call obedience. Intentionally learning and practicing what Christ commands. So in verse 1, Christ's reference, he makes reference to the word, he says, your practice of righteousness. The practice of your righteousness. So he makes it clear, this righteousness is yours personally. And he talks about the practice or the doing. And this is also known as the disciplines of grace. So it's not, I get saved, 
and it's all good. And we get discouraged. Shouldn't I be zapped? And I keep coming and I keep coming and I keep coming to church and I'm waiting for something to happen. But Jesus very specifically here talks about the discipline or practice of righteousness, where discipline is intentional. It is ongoing. It is taught and it is developed. So we think of little children eating and talking and walking. It's what they naturally do. It's a part of their daily life. And yet parents who have infants, are you involved in that transition from liquids to solid foods? How much time and effort do you spend on sippy cups and bibs and all of those other things? And children walking and getting to see your children's first step. Of course, they're naturally capable of doing that. But are you involved? Talking. What would happen if we never talked to our children? Speech therapists. Let us know, right? So all of these things are natural gifts that we have. But if they are not taught, if they're not developed, if they are not trained by a loving and good parent, they go astray. And Jesus is pointing out here, hey, with your giving, if you are not intentionally showing mercy on a regular basis, if you are not learning from a good father, if you are not practicing on a regular basis, if it's not a regular part of your life, even though it should be natural to you as a child of God, it's going to go astray. And the same is true of our praying. And brother who told me he came from an Asian Taiwanese family he said my dad never talked at the dinner table we never shared so he said when I first came together and everybody was having these public prayers and I first got saved it felt totally awkward uncomfortable he didn't have a hard time praying privately but praying in a group was something that was very difficult or new to him but Christ's point is these are things that we should be doing and practicing privately but we need to learn from him how to do this. But even more so, he's pointing out, this is a protection to guard your heart. The discipline of worship, the discipline of giving, the discipline of praying, and we can add to that the discipline of spending time listening to Christ, which is assumed here. Because brothers and sisters, if we are not being trained and we're not being disciplined and we're not being shepherded and we're not walking with Christ in these things, we're not going to be worshiping Christ and we're not going to be praying to him and we're not going to be reading his word. We're going to be worshiping and giving to who? Ourselves. So Jesus walks through. We guard our hearts against false worship, first by surrendering our hearts to him, but second, by walking with him by faith and obeying him, but also being trained in the disciplines of grace. Thirdly, guarding our hearts and worship for the Lord involves discerning and avoiding false hearts and false worship. Having commanded his disciples what they must be in verse in chapter 5, 48, he goes on in 6, 5, he commands his disciples what they're not to be in prayer. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And we talked about this previously, where that title hypocrite is for Greek and Roman actors who are acting for the applause of men. And the title that Jesus repeatedly gives to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite. 
Our modern day equivalent are the people who are raised in church. That's us, folks. You're raised in church, you know how the game goes. You know how to do a sermon. You know how to pray. You know how to teach. You know how to do all of those things. But it's no reflection of what's going on in our hearts. You can play the drama. And the implication of Jesus' command is that such people appear to be children of God based on their religious education, their zeal, and their activity. But they are not. They are playing a role. He says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And it's worth noting here, Jesus is not condemning or prohibiting public prayer. He's going for what they love. He's going for the ungodly desire mode of the, of the heart that drives counterfeit worship and prayer, the love and affection of worldly success and validation. Brothers and sisters, how often do we get discouraged in our relationships, in our homes, in our families, and in our worship when we do not attain or achieve the success or the validation that we were hoping for on Instagram, on social media? According to Jesus, this is contrary to the holiness of God and God's children. And yet, this is Jesus' first command about prayer. And I believe he does so because it is still a very real danger for all his children because we are still living in this world and our heart and sinful flesh craves the validation of man. And we see that what Jesus is calling us to is to forego the success of the world and instead of loving the applause of men, follow him to the cross and in the end this yields one result it talks about the recognition of our father and when he talks about the reward he's talking about this idea the emphasis is recognition or affirmation that we are our father's child and one of the tests of that, brothers and sisters, is whether we're willing to let go of the success of the world to say Christ is enough and my relationship with God is so important, that doesn't matter. Now you think about that in our relationships with our spouses. What happens in our relationship with our spouses when we won't let go of the success of the world? Things head south pretty fast, do they not? But how much more, brothers and sisters, in our relationship with our Heavenly Father? And though these disciples are just infants, Jesus is showing them and he's shepherding them, look, this is what's of most important. You might not appreciate it or fully realize it now, but this relationship that you have with God as your Heavenly Father is priceless and worth more than anything this world has to offer. And those who go after worldly success, especially in the pulpit, or in church or in ministry, essentially they're giving all of that up for the applause of men. This brings us to our third point this morning. The prayer of God's children appreciate and honors who their father is. The prayer of God's children appreciate and honors who their father is. And we can go on and say that it really values the person of God and it values the relationship with him. 
In verse 6, Jesus instructs his disciples. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And once again, Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer. He is making a command that his disciples are not to be hypocrites. That is the point of this command. They're not to pray like religious counterfeits where it's for show. But even more so, Jesus is commanding regular, ongoing, everyday private prayer, communion with God. He's showing his disciples, look, if you're a child of God, you need to be with your Father in heaven. And you need to be with him on a regular basis. You need to be intentional about this. You need to be practicing it. You need to learn about it from me. This needs to be the pulse of your life. Why? Because you are a child of God. And the point that he's making about going into your room and shutting the door, one, it's the opposite of the way the world functions. But two, even more so, it is a prayer that appreciates who our Father in heaven is. He says, and pray to your father who is in secret or is hidden. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he's showing that for children of God, prayer is not first and foremost about getting something I need or what I want. It is first and foremost about our relationship with God, not as an earthly father, but as our heavenly father. A father who is holy, that idea that God is hidden is a reference to the holiness of God. That as you go through the Old Testament, you see that God hides himself from the world, even though he is present everywhere. Why? Because he's holy and the world is sinful. And where do we see this most clearly? We see it at the cross, where God is, in a sense, he is hidden and he's cut off from the horror of what is happening in the judgment against sin, and yet he is present and he is seeing and he's actively providing for his children. And Jesus is exhorting the disciples, the children of God, this is who your father is. Shun the world. He is far from the ways of the world. He's far from the success of the world. The place to be with him is a place of intimacy where he alone can see. And it's also an expression of God's desire for his children. What is God's desire for his children? It is not a meritocracy. It is not you do this and I give you a reward. It's the idea that God's desire for his children is that they would have the very best. And the very best is intimate fellowship and communion with the God who has created them and saved them and loves them for himself. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus builds on this foundation of prayer being intimate communion with their Heavenly Father, and he moves on to talk about the Gentiles. He says, verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And my boys frequently remind me, of how long my prayers are. And I shudder to let them read this because it'll get misused and abused, right? But in actual fact, the word that Jesus uses here in Greek, bata logeo, okay? That bata is a phrase that makes reference to stammering or babbling. And in all likelihood, it's a reference to the stammering or babbling that came from mystics and pagans and what they would do in their orgies and in the temples of their gods 
in mystical celebrations where they would speak in hidden tongues or spiritual tongues because they believed by this ecstatic stammering that they would unlock the power and the mysteries of God. Described, quote-unquote, as nonsensical sounds, believed to have spiritual power. Speaking in tongues, brothers and sisters, if there's ever an indictment against speaking in tongues, we need to consider our Lord and Savior and what he's saying here. Because this is the way the Gentiles would carry on and get together and get drunk and be together at parties and lose control and just blurt out and do a spiritual language. And if you knew the secret language, they believed they were unleashing the power of the gods. But instead, what they were really unleashing was what? Well, their flesh, right? And Jesus here is showing as he looks at the scribes and Pharisees on one side and the Gentiles on the other side, he's saying, look, these are two sides of the same coin. It's counterfeit prayer. Both of these are about efforts that people make, whether it's the religious prayers on the one hand or the ecstatic babbling of the Gentiles on the other. Both of them are all human effort where you're trying to get something from God and pretend you've got a special relationship with God when in fact you have absolutely nothing. an insult to who God is. Do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Leon Morris says, prayer is about communion with God as our Heavenly Father, not a means of getting what we want or keeping him informed. And brothers and sisters, as we grow in obedience and as we grow in love, and we grow in this appreciation of who our Heavenly Father is, and we see from Christ and we look to the cross, we begin to grow in this appreciation that we have a God whose love is holy. It is set apart. It is perfect. And he loves his children perfectly. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, he needs to bring us all through hard times for us to see that. And at the time, it's hard to see. But as we walk with him in obedience and by faith, by his promises, not by our circumstances or experiences or our successes, but by his promises, as we come through, when we come through on the other side, we look back and say, that's exactly what I needed. He loved me perfectly. He is a good father. And if we think about human fathers, we get messed up, right? Because our human fathers fall short. But at their best, human parents know what their children need. How much more so our Heavenly Father. And Jesus will go on to explain that more in depth to his disciples later in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's urging his disciples, as you pray, you need to pray with a growing appreciation of who your Heavenly Father is in this gift of this relationship. And that's why, brothers and sisters, our prayer and our worship is very much a reflection of our maturity in Christ. And that's not to belittle anybody who is not mature. But as we grow in maturity and as we grow in faith and as we walk in obedience, because obedience typically is one of the tests of our maturity. As we grow, we grow in this appreciation of who our Heavenly Father is and what Christ has done for us and the sacrifice and the purchase. And the communion, brothers and sisters, grows not just sweeter and sweeter, but no more necessary every minute and every moment. Why? Because we're growing in an appreciation of who our Heavenly Father is and how perfect He 
perfectly he loves us in Christ. Now in the Chin home, there's sometimes I'll hear a shout. Mom, where's my shirt? Mom, I need this for school today. And when I hear that, number one, I have to think, I'm guilty of far worse. Done it a million times over. And it's an opportunity to love, right? So I speak with certain individuals in our home whose names I won't mention. Say, who exactly are you talking to? I'm talking to mom, right? No, you're not talking to your mother, right? You don't talk to your mother that way. She is not your servant and slave. I remember my dad and my mom telling me the same thing. She's not your servant and slave. This is not how you talk to your mother. She is not here to expedite your life at school, right? Brothers and sisters, how often do we talk to Christ and our Heavenly Father that way? And yet, those individuals are not banished from our house. They are my children and my sons. I love them. And so it's an opportunity to say, hey, we need to reset here. And sometimes I'll even say, look, for the past two weeks, what I've noticed is your tone and the way you speak, it's starting to go in this direction. Your heart is filled with not good things, right? Is this from the Lord or is this from the world? And we have the opportunity to call sinners to repentance and say, you're still my sons. I still love you. And we have an opportunity to start over completely. But starting over completely means doing it Christ's way, not our way, right? And there's forgiveness and grace and restoration. And a relationship can be restored, which otherwise would be, remain broken. And brothers and sisters, in our lives, we need Christ as a shepherd to come in and do that. And it begins, are we going to listen to what he has to say? Are we going to be offended and say, don't tell me what to do? Are we willing to come under and realize when he comes and he gets under the foot of our car, we need him to come and correct and it's out of love because he's bringing us back to what's most important. Can I just have my final slide? Thank you for bearing with me this morning. Many words on a command for prayer to be brief, right? Okay, how can we learn to pray like Jesus? One, intentional loving and listening to Jesus as our king. You're not going to pray if you don't listen to what he has to say. It's expository listening, listening with an intent of obeying what he has to say. Intentional meditation on who God is and what he has done in Christ on a regular basis. Intentional and regular private prayer to God as our Heavenly Father in Christ. So we think of Jesus, brothers and sisters, he was a man of prayer. And he frequently would withdraw to a quiet place to pray to his Father in Heaven. He would do it when he was tired, he would do it when he was exhausted, he would do it when life was difficult. And that was the place of refreshment. And as he came to the cross the night before he was to be crucified, what did he do? He prayed, and who did he pray for? He prayed for you and I. And then as he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples, hey, watch and pray, watch and pray, and they couldn't, and they fell asleep. And he says, watch and pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. 
And he did so because their protection against the terrible things in this world that separate us from the God who loves us, his provision and his protection is a righteous prayer that comes from above and not below. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your instructions, for the care of our hearts and watching over this relationship with our Father who is in heaven. Lord, would you help us to guard it as precious and would you help us to guard it as precious by surrendering our hearts to you and being intentional about following your commands and making your commands a regular part of our lives by faith. Thank you for this goodness in our life and for the communion that we have because of you. In your name we pray. Amen.